Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Non-Contact Time, a podcast about all things educational with Hannah and Kath. I'm Kath. I'm Hannah. And welcome to the show. So what's on the agenda today, Hannah? In data, we're going to talk about the free school meals debacle and the effects that this has on education. In teaching and learning, we're speaking to Schweb, who's from Anti-Small Talk. In Pupils Causing Concern, we're going to share some funny stories And in any other business, we're going to talk about some upcoming episodes. So let's get on with the podcast. In data, we're speaking about free school meals and the allocation in the holidays, which is the debate that we've been speaking about and hearing about recently. So, Kath, you've got some information on free school meals and how that affects students. Yeah, so um, free school meals are are an interesting concept. We don't have this in Australia. So when I first came to the UK and I saw students sitting down and having a hot meal in the middle of the day, I thought it was such a brilliant idea because in Australia, it's more about packed lunches. And if you want to buy something, there's food available to buy, but it's not exactly the same as it is in the UK. So I actually think it's a real strength of the UK education system. Currently, there's 15.9% of students who are receiving free school meals. 12.5% of those are primary aged and 10.9% of those are secondary aged. Now, as a secondary teacher, I know that um, kind of charting the success of students over time who receive free school meals is a target. And it has been in pretty much every school I've ever worked in. Um, Ofsted always look at it as a measure and they're always looking to see how we're helping those disadvantaged children. What I found really interesting in this data is um, students do a school readiness test in year one where they do and they find out the expected level of phonics. Students who receive free school meals, 70.1% achieve their expected level of phonics and they're obviously receiving their free school meals in year reception year one and year two so it's free to all of those children when they first enter school so 70.1 percent is a really high percentage when you think about it that percentage drops dramatically when we get to GCSE because GCSE students who achieve 5A to C including English, Maths and Science who are free school meal identified is only 33.3%. 
And if we think about it in terms of food and、um, the amount of food that they get, those children in the older ages aren't always guaranteed to get those free school meals. And I think those percentages speak really loudly of that food security and insecurity. So, Hannah, what do you think of that? Well, it's interesting when you mentioned about Australia don't have free school meals because when I looked、mm. at the statistics for this country and the criteria, it says that. In in England, children are eligible for free school meals if their parents earn less than seven thousand four hundred pounds after tax. So that works out at about six hundred and twenty pounds per month, which is not a lot of money. So, why do you think in Australia you don't have free school meals? I think it's because the living wage is much much higher in Australia. So、um, I have to admit, when I looked at The minimum wage in the UK against the minimum wage in Australia—it's there's a massive difference between the amounts. Australia is not the highest in the world. I know that there are countries that have a higher living wage, but Australia has been quite good at being able to manage that. And it's always kind of a political—it's on the political agenda constantly. And even my friends in Australia are constantly talking about that living wage.、Um, I know the wages in Australia are a bit mad at the moment. <laughs> Some of them are so high; their minimum wages in certain industries. But I think that's that's the big thing. If you pay people enough money, then they're able to feed their kids, aren't they? Yeah, I think that reduces that cycle of poverty. Because I'm looking at a few tweets here. This one says, "If minimum wage increased at the same time,、uh, at the same rate as CEO salaries since its introduction, it would now be twenty pound plus per hour." And we know that our minimum wage is nothing near that. So it's really interesting that the salaries of the people who are kind of super rich. Continue to grow, whereas the salaries of people who are hardworking but maybe at the bottom of that ladder have stayed stagnant for quite a long time. And I've done a bit of research into the gap between CEO pay and the gap between the average worker, and it's something like the CEO earns about 117 times their average worker salary. So for me,、Whoa. that's massive. If they can afford. To pay their CEO millions of pounds a year, then if we had a living wage, a proper living wage, maybe、uh, our country and our tax money wouldn't need to be spent on these students and these parents who can't afford to eat. But actually, from a government perspective, I think that should be the, one of the bare minimums, one of the things that we ask for from our government that they ensure that no child goes, you know, goes hungry. What I think is interesting is when we're talking about the survey of free school meals, it's constantly talking about the food, and Hannah and I have talked about this a lot. But it's the idea that it's we're just talking about people not being able to afford food.、Um, I was reading from a head teacher who was saying that in the last five years, he has been he has seen an increase in the number of students who are unable to、um, eat, but also who are becoming homeless. We're not just talking about One human right. We're talking about a range of human rights that these children are not actually experiencing. And、um, he also said that children these days are much more aware of the insecurities and financial burdens of their family. So that also has an impact on their stress levels. So this head teacher said, "I have observed children emotionally battered and unable to learn, pupils too hungry to think, and deprived of sleep due to lack of heating." Bedding and clothing. So we're not just talking about children who are not receiving food at home. There's all these other burdens that they have in their lives, and which is why the reason they can't actually focus on what they're supposed to be learning. So some of the physical effects of hunger are things like toxic stress. 
So this unrelieved activation of the body's stress management system. So they're constantly at the highest level of stress, which means they're not gonna be able to take in information. Lots of children suffering from malnutrition, um, the one that I thought was really interesting was limited cognitive bandwidth. So we all have a limited cognitive bandwidth, but younger people's is actually much smaller. And most of the time we're focusing on the resources that we need. So you imagine as teachers, we see it all the time, those kids that really need to go to the toilet who's forgotten to go during their break time and they come in and like need to go to the toilet, need to go to the toilet and they they continue and like throw tantrums and they just can't think because their only thought is I need to relieve myself. Well it's the same with the child who's hungry. They're constantly thinking I need to get food. Where am I going to get my next food from? Um, and because of that, they can't actually take in the information that you're giving in a class. So imagine that you're only thinking about where your next meal comes from as a young person. You're not going to know algebra or you're not going to care how to critically analyse an artist. Um, students who tend to be hungry or have um, problems at home tend to have more health issues like stomachache, headaches and colds. So I guess they're triggers that we could look for in young people to kind of raise with our safeguarding teams. Um, it affects the brain development, so um, it particularly affects how students process information. It can cause anxiety and depression, which we all know, we've seen it in our young people and it's, um, it's quite it's probably one of the hardest things as a teacher to actually witness and see is a child who is sad or depressed because their home life is so difficult. Um, they achieve poorly on standardised testing, which is something I didn't actually know before reading these statistics, but they tend to actually um, achieve lower scores than a child who has um, a food secure household. And then obviously there's the just the normal emotions of shame and isolation. They're embarrassed because they've come into school hungry. They don't want to tell people because they've got this pride. So there will be people or young people out there that are actually suffering from problems at home or hunger and they're not actually sharing it with other people and I think that's a massive one because free school meals allow students that kind of anonymity but taking it away means that they have to actually come forward and say something and I think that's really terrifying for a young person. Absolutely I think it's really interesting as well that at the kind of towards June July this year ministers were so desperate to get students back into education to close the gap but actually the long-standing gap or the gap that's going to affect students after covid because a lot of people have been made redundant i think it's something like 8.2 employees for every thousand have been made redundant and that's just between june and august that's from the um, office for national T statistics so that's a massive number so more pupils more students more children are being plunged into poverty and Where's the support for that gap? We, we need to close all the gaps. We need help as an education system to support these students into an environment that is proactive. And in order for that to happen, yes, they need to be in school, but it needs to be safe. It needs to be a productive environment. And that means the students need to be ready to learn in whatever, you know, whatever form that may take. And obviously we're talking about these free school meals at the moment, but it is really important because otherwise those gaps won't get closed. Like Kath said, those students who have not got access to a bed or heating or food, they're not going to be thinking about those things while they're sat in maths. 
they're going to be thinking how hungry they are because their stomach is is really painful for them or they're going to be zoned out because their brain might have kind of switched off because they can't concentrate so much so these things are so important in order to close that gap and it's it's just another example of how our education system is stacked against those who are disadvantaged financially because if you're very from the very start unable to eat or unable to avoid all of these distractions that really are basic human rights to be to be warm to be fed to be clothed to be housed then how are these students expected to get really good GCSEs and like the data says those students who get free school meals as a right in lower primary school they are able to get much higher marks on standardized tests than those students in secondary school who probably should get free school meals because their parents don't earn a lot of money, but they're not entitled to it because they don't earn under £7,400 and actually £620 a month to live off that. I know people whose rent is more than that. So then there needs to be some kind of support and some ownership from the government because it does leak back or link back to companies not paying a proper living wage for these parents because why would you go to work and spend £1,000 a month on childcare if you're only earning £620 a month, it's just not possible. Something needs to change in order for these children to get themselves out of poverty. I think one of the arguments that I've really, that's really bothered me reading all this information is those people who've said, look at me as a middle-class person making a really, really cheap meal. And I think making one meal for yourself when you have an array of ingredients isn't the same as someone who's living in poverty. So the example that I was given a few years ago was from um, a colleague of mine, actually. They were a single income household. She only worked part time in teaching um, and her husband at the time was looking for work. So um, a part time teacher's wage isn't much. And I know there'd be lots of part time teachers out there like it's not a lot at all. She had four children, but obviously when they had those four children, they could afford those children because they both had full-time jobs. And then it, circumstances just ended up that they were on a single wage. While I was working with her husband, did take an honour job, but it was in minimum wage. So her children are still on free school meals. But she was talking about the difference between a nutritious meal and a cheap meal for her children. So if you were going to go and buy a bag of apples, and most bags of apples, depending on the supermarket, they're a pound, pound 50, sometimes pushing two pounds, like I said, depending on the supermarket. So a bag of apples would feed them for a snack once a day, that's it. And I did think, oh yeah, because if you've got more than one person in your household or if you've got multiple people in your household, a bag of apples is going to disappear. So she would have to buy a bag of apples every day for her children. And that's quite expensive over the course of a week. Whereas you could go and get a pack of donuts for 50p if they're marked down, sometimes 20p. And that would be a snack for a day as well. So same amount of snack, um, a little bit more calorific. So the bellies are a bit fuller. But it would mean that you could buy a week's worth of donuts for the same price as a bag of apples. And that's where that food poverty or inequality comes about. It was something I had never really thought of because at the time I was actually living by myself and 
um, I was thinking about how cheap it was to feed myself. But then when you add another person to the equation and then you add allergies to the equation or you add some sort of food intolerance to the equation, it becomes a little bit more complex than just saying, well, look, I made an egg on toast. That cost me 40p because that was the example I did actually see on Instagram. And it made me really angry because what if you had a child that had an egg allergy? You're not going to be able to provide that meal. What if you had a child with gluten intolerance? What if you had... Um, there's just such a multitude of problems with just making it so oversimplified. And I think those people out there that are oversimplifying this issue and ignoring the fact that there are people out there that are not getting or not having their basic human rights met in the UK. That's the actual problem. That's the crux of the problem rather than saying, well, you need to be able to make a cheaper meal. Yeah, so it's like the the people who are discussing this issue and don't want free school meals in the holidays for pupils are making excuses for poverty that lay the blame firmly on the parents and deflecting from a continual and systemic, systemic failure of the government to support those in need. So if you've got a government that's going to support those people, you're going to have a more productive society. You're going to have um, people aren't living below the poverty line. You've not got a strain on the NHS because of rickets and malnutrition and things like that. So I think we really need to change our tact and look at perhaps not the parents. I mean, you know, there are going to be parents out there sometimes who might spend money where they shouldn't, but that's not the issue. It's not those small minority of parents. It's the majority of parents who are struggling are not spending their money on the latest gadgets or whatever it might be. They are just struggling. And that's because of a lot of the the things that have happened with our government over the many years and these children shouldn't suffer for it it's not their fault they are being disadvantaged and their future is being taken away from them because of something that is happening against them or without the, any of their control so Rishi Sunak has said that he's given money to councils to provide free school meals over the holidays but councils have said it was given before the summer I think it was about June time and had to be spent within 12 weeks. So the money had to be spent before September. So it doesn't cover October half term that's just gone. So I think that's where the issue lies. I think the government do say we, we are helping, we are doing this, but it needs to be more, there needs to be a bit more. So businesses across the country have stepped up and have offered to help out. And it's really nice. And Marcus Rashford has done this whole um, campaign and he's been supporting it, but it's not down to them really. They are helping you know, in spite of the obstacles, they should be doing that alongside something else that the government should be supporting with. And I know it's tax money and things cost money, but we've got a track and trace system that doesn't work and that costs a lot. <laughs> it, I feel exactly the same way about um, this whole people making scrubs for the NHS. There's lots of people out there that are like, oh, look at all these amazing people making scrubs for the NHS, which I also think is brilliant. And I think everyone that's done that well done to you. You are absolutely amazing. Thank you for doing that. But we shouldn't have a system where volunteers have to make scrubs for a public health company. That means that there's a failure of budget from the government to actually enable those people to have scrubs in the first place. It's that same idea. If the government was working properly and making sure that the public services were really great and really served the public, then we wouldn't be having these arguments in the first place. And saying things like, um, 
So the one, the example I was giving Hannah earlier today, I was talking about people saying, well, if Marcus Rashford and all of his Premier League people gave up 1% of their wage, we could feed all these children. Again, not the responsibility of Marcus Rashford. He's a great person for raising the issue, saying this was a problem when I was young and for my community. And then saying, you know what, I'd really like the government to help me out with this. And they didn't. But he's fantastic for doing that. But it's not the it's not the responsibility of Premier League footballers to feed our children. It should come from the government making our public services really strong. And actually, if we made our public services really strong, other countries would want to be a part of our economy and our kind of programs that we put out there. If we were stronger, we would be more attractive to other countries in a post-Brexit world. I think it's really interesting that you say some people have been talking about, well, why, why don't Premier League footballers contribute some money? And, and it isn't their responsibility. But what about the companies who are not paying tax? Where's their responsibility? Where does their mm. responsibility lie? And what about these companies who are paying people a really low wage, pretty much close to minimum wage, and then their employees have to go on benefits or have some kind of tax credits to allow them to feed their families? Where does their responsibility lie? If we had a, an economy that I mean we've not got a magic money tree that's Theresa May's famous famous saying but if we had an economy that suited the public as opposed to suited big business then you might avoid some of the things that we're spending tax money on so you might not have to spend money on free school meals as much we might not have to support these these children through malnutrition and um, put another strain on the NHS there will there might not be a, an obesity problem because parents will be able to afford good quality food to feed their children it's something that isn't just isolated to one type of incident it's quite you know it's a it's linked to everything if anyone wanted to watch a kind of a movie or a docu-series that um, really shows what it's like to live on that poverty line and some of the choices that these parents have to make on um, these horrible contracts like a zero hours contract or someone who's working in the NHS for health there's a film called Sorry We Missed You and I watched it um, with some colleagues actually earlier in the year or was it last year Hannah I can't remember but it was absolutely harrowing um, and it really showed what these people went through on a, the struggles on a day-to-day -day basis, the impact that it had on their children, the impact it had on their relationship, the choices that they had to make in terms of their well-being and their children's well-being. Um, the example was, is it an NHS nurse who's a she, carer? She, yeah, she's a carer, yeah. And um, then the husband was working on a zero-hours contract for a nondescript delivery company that may rhyme with Mamazon. <laughs> so <laughs> slick. That was slick. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but um as a result of watching that film, I've got to admit I really think about where I buy my um products from because I thought I don't want to have a company that treats their employees like that. I don't want to give them my money. I want to give money to the companies that are treating their employees well, that the products are made um, in, a, in a way that's not going to impact people's human rights. And it really made me think about that. But it's a great film. Go out and watch it. 
it is doesn't have a happy ending and I'm glad someone warned me of that but it's very eye-opening it's really interesting as well to see how one minor slip-up can force a family on the breadline so in the film there was the, the husband works for a delivery company and something bad happens I'm not going to obviously reveal what it is, but it meant that he's struggling then for work and it puts them in a really precarious position through no fault of his own. I think the the thing that really struck me when we started researching all of this, um, Hannah mentioned to me about the cyclic systemic problems with benefits. And I think if we could break the cycle for some of these people and some of these families, it would just have such a massive impact. Imagine a family that had always been in poverty or had always been in minimum wage jobs and then someone breaks the chain and then they're able to like lift themselves up. If we enable people to do that or we empower people to do that, there's going to be more examples of it and then more people are going to do it too because positivity breeds positivity. And um, I think anything we can do to be able to break these systemic patterns is a really positive thing. Like Hannah said, we say it's our responsibility as teachers. We put a lot of responsibility and burden on ourselves. Um, and we think about our kids over half term and we think about like their lives beyond the classroom and it makes us very emotional. But we need everyone to feel that way with us and help us with that because if we're just doing it alone, we can only do so much. Absolutely. In Teaching and Learning, we're going to speak to Schweb about bullying in teaching and what leaders can do to create a positive working environment. Now I'm going to launch into our five questions that we ask all our guests. Okay. So describe teaching to you. It's the best job in the world. No doubt about it. It's the best job in the world. You are working, you're imparting knowledge, you're working with young people. It's an honour, it's a privilege. You're, you're shaping the next generation. Um, I just think there's too much state intervention in it. That's my opinion. I think there's too much micromanagement, which I refer to as micro laxatives. They're going through education at the rate of, not, uh, rate of knots. Um, we need to allow teachers to be autonomous practitioners, but teaching for me is the best job in the world. It's incredible. You know, watching those kids grow up and develop and, and if you're so focused on them and you've got such a you know, tunnel vision focus on their progress, the best teachers do that. And uh, I really do think uh, it is just the best job in the world. Nothing, nothing, nothing beats that euphoria, that buzz. I get goosebumps when I walk in the classroom every single time. I can't sit still. I'm like a kid. But even when I, when I meet a new class, you're so desperate to you know, give a good impression. It's, it's incredible. I, I, I lose words. It's the most exciting feeling teaching a lesson and, and supporting young people and knowing that you're, you know, you're, 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 you're a pillar of social justice and social equality. And it's kind of like your like silent way of showing discontent of what's going on in the world. You're able to, you know, it's kind of like a silent protest is teaching, isn't it? If you, if you offer the, if you have the uh, social justice vision and warrior pro approach that I have. So yeah, it's, it's definitely the best job in the world. That's only sort of like, if I can sum that up, it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it's the best. Amazing. Um, so for you, what's the best type of student to teach? Uh, I, uh, this is going to sound mental, uh, crazy. I like disruptive classes. I like classes with this character. It's like um, you can have a. It's like it's like when you go out for like go out for dinner and there's no seasoning. Like you go to a table, there's no salt and pepper, and you're thinking, what's going on? I need a class where there's salt, there's pepper, there's peri peri sauce. I need the entire combination together. So I like difficult classes. I had a difficult class of thirty-two boys. 
my god they were difficult i was working in south lincolnshire um brexit town i clearly fitted in as you can imagine the kids did not understand me but it took so much time just to understand them learn the context knew what they liked knew what they didn't like finding similarities but the difficult class i think they're the ones that you can really make a, a difference and if you're consistently there for them you'll get consistency in results and behavior so and you're consistent with your approach as well so the difficult the difficult students are the ones that i really like working with i also like the keen beans the ones who rock up early we're desperate to learn and they'll say they'll wave at you really awkwardly in the corridor it's a bit embarrassing and they're they're really cool as well but uh, really yeah the difficult class i think the challenging students those are the ones where you know there should be more of a drive and focus regardless of you know could be boys could be girls could be whatever ethnicity but the challenging students are the ones that we should never give up on always be patient with and work or work hard to to engage and educate I think that's why a lot of people go into teaching, isn't it? Just to really make a difference with students who might be disengaged or might struggle or might not have the life that, you know, you think that all children should have. And to know that you're making that difference is such a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And you can see in parents' evenings or open evenings when you see the parents, well, you can, the way I look at it, teachers have a radar of how students are behaving in front of their parents and in front of them. Once you bridge that disconnect between home and you, the child opens up and, it's, it's an incredible feeling. It really is an incredible feeling. Challenge, the challenging, difficult classes, they, they make teaching worthwhile. We could all teach, you know, hypothetically speaking, at a private school and have Gavin Williamson's and Michael Gove's and teach them sort of people. Will they make a change in the world, a positive change? Probably not. Um, will we be able to, you know, see, the, uh, see their success and see them develop and grow? Probably not. So I think the fact that we can physically see it happening in front of our own eyes is magic. So what's your classroom pet peeve? Um, well, things I don't really like, the most things I most yeah. dislike. Um, I think low level disruption is annoying, but it's not the, I don't mean like, I don't mind people talking, that's not a problem at all. I don't like people who whistle and like make silly noises because I used to make silly noises at school and I feel like it's calmer now for me. I used to make really silly noises in class. I used to whistle and, you know, make all sorts of noise. We used to, we used to it was funny to like annoy teachers and I think the most annoying thing is like this, just a general silliness and especially when you're trying to teach a very serious topic. I teach sociology and RE, like euthanasia, capital punishment. It's not, it's not, you can't have shits and giggles in those lessons, can you? Those lessons need to, they need to have like a very serious veneer with them. So I think that's one of the things I really, really find irritating is when you're trying to teach a lesson um, that's, you know, very serious and you get low level disruption. The second thing is a lack of resources and stationery. That really annoys me, not from students, but when you don't have them in the classroom, like you want a glue stick short and you're panicking. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. And you know, we're the sixth richest country in the world. We should not be short of glue sticks and we shouldn't actually be using, you know, pen and paper anymore. We should be using computers. That's a different story altogether, isn't it? But yeah, uh, lack of stationary and low level disruption, those two things, you know, uh, they, 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 they put me off my cereal. <laughs> if, you, if you're thinking about low level disruption and if you were a student that used to wind teachers up deliberately, what kind of teacher would stop you in your tracks and make you not whistle or make noises anymore? Um, I, I think the, I think if the teacher was um, willing to allow me to get away with it and not continuously shout at me, if I was continuously patronised and shouted at, I, I would carry on and I would not stop and it would be like a barnyard. I'd continuously and I'd get other people to do it and I'd be like instigating it. So if the teacher can like bridge that disconnect and develop a rapport with me, like one of my favourite teachers, Mr Thompson, used to actually whistle 
at me, like just direct. I used to whistle all the time. So he used to whistle and I used to stop whistling. I was like, he's taken my trend off me. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's about engaging and knowing the student as well, not coming down like a ton of bricks on them because you know, it's context. It's all about knowing your context, knowing your class cohort. And I think on, on my class list as well, whenever I go through uh, my students, I always jot a few notes down per student, whether it's a post-it note or on the back of a piece of paper. Just knowing which are the big allies and the ones that you really struggle with and knowing the ones that might be slightly silly, getting the seating plans correct. I think knowing your class is more important than any, any teaching that you actually do because well, then you know how to teach those students, don't you? And what ideas you can implement. Because group work don't work, then scrap it, try something different. If, if they like taking notes, you know, do something note-based. They like doing um, activities, do activities. They don't like worksheets, don't use worksheets. So it really is, you know, pitching it at your class and at the sort of audience that you've got. It's almost like turning up to a funeral and start cracking jokes, isn't it? If, if you're teaching badly, that's what it's like. It's very awkward. So I think as a teacher, you are... You know, you're, you're an entertainer as well, not just a teacher. I prayed myself in the entertainment part. I think entertainment, value value for money, you know, it's taxpayer money, isn't it, that we're being, we're being salaried for, aren't we? So if anything, you know, we should be entertaining as well as teaching. Probably more teaching than uh, educating, than entertaining, but the entertainment part is very important. Yeah, as a music teacher, I totally get that. <laughs> Definitely I've always wanted to preach drama like I've always wanted to do drama like this is a completely off the cuff I've always wanted to start a school production called Life of Khan so my life like all 28 years like from birth to now but no school's quite past it yeah I don't know why you know <laughs> the script yeah it's written. surprising it's really I know, it's shocking isn't it yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine trying to convince the kids now who's gonna play me <laughs> it'd be really awkward actually that was really awkward yeah I'll, I'll play myself <laughs> Um, so what do you do to look after your mental health or unwind after a particularly difficult day um after very difficult days i just go on my bike i literally put my headphones in come home get changed straight on my bike and spend two three hours just cycling um i also do a lot of reading as well i think particularly since the current social trends with black lives matter trying to inform myself more on uh, social issues and social justice and inequalities i graduated six years ago so i never really read a book out of love of reading until I was at university. So reading has become a massive thing. And I think one thing I find when I'm not when I'm not at work, I'm at home, I try to avoid touching work. I completely switch off from it. It gets left at the door. Because if you continue to bring it home every single day, there's no break from home and work, is there? And you know the the, the, the dropout rates, the retention and recruitment rates in teaching. And I was reading somewhere, is it 39,000 teachers left teaching last year? How many of them are because of mental health breakdowns or failure to establish some sort of work-life balance? I think once you're at home, your home life should dictate what you do. And once you're at work, you should not saying don't do any work at all, but it shouldn't be the case where you're working 12, 13 hour days. It's uh, that that's bonkers. That that leaves people finished and that destroys the love. It becomes a job, not a vocation or something that you love. And you now if there's a contractual obligation, no one would be a teacher. People do it for the love of it. That's so true. Do you have any good um, recommendations of books um, that have educated you on Black Lives Matter or any of the BAME issues that have kind of come to the forefront in the news? The book that I've been reading um, massively at the minute is, um, it's called Hunger Pains. It's not directly linked to Black Lives Matter, but it's more through social inequalities. It's called Hunger Pains by Kaylee Garthright. And she did a uh, two-year case study where she spent time in a food bank and she researched the food bank, the people that were using it, and sort of like the British perceptions of inequality and injustice. Um, I've also been reading Afwa, Afwa Hirsch's uh, British, which talks about the good immigrants. So the idea that you know people come from Pakistan, India, West Indies, and there's a uh, 
level assimilation need to happen. They don't question the status quo. Those are the good immigrants, whereas the bad immigrants are those who are critical and looking for equality and not validation. And I think I was the good immigrant for a long time, very long time. I think since I think particularly Black Lives Matter, I've realigned myself with equality and moved away from validation because it's opened up more doors for me as well. Mm. Well, I'm a good immigrant because I'm Australian and I'm basically British, so I don't get as much discrimination. I wrote a blog called um, White Noise. I'm not here to say to you, you need to recognise your white privilege. That's nebulous. That doesn't offer any steps forward. If anything, that creates that division between you and I. If anything, I'm looking yeah. at similarities. So it's my job to, I don't know, recommend a podcast. Oh, Catherine, why don't you read this? Hannah, why don't you listen to this? It should be my role not to educate, but to signpost, because I don't know it all. I think I find it really difficult when BAME educators are, um, it can be white bashing at times, I won't lie. You know, it can be very vicious rhetoric and I'm not here to project my own biases. I'm constantly reflecting on my own worldviews. So I think it's really important to, to, to find a third way. We've got two ways. We've got radical right-wing ideas. We've got radical anti-racism ideas. There's got to be a third way. And you know, the third way is unity, is conversation, is dialogue. And it's something that we're doing right now. This is the third way. Uh, I was just thinking, I um, attended that diversity um cpd with the teacher development trust and the head the guy that does the bame education tweets was saying exactly the same thing it was the same message it's like you can't change people's point of views but we do have to unify in this and i was like that's brilliant and everything you said i wrote down all these quotes and i'm like i'm totally stealing that and saying that to my kids and i totally agree with you i think we've got to find our commonalities and then we'll be able to find all this common ground and be able to work together better Absolutely. I don't want to be in a, a field by myself. I want to be stood there beside my LGBTQ brothers and sisters. I want to be st stood there next to my uh, hijab wearing female sisters. I want to be stood there with everyone of all walks of life, old, young, etc. So the field of unity has to be joined together when people all walks of life. We can't talk about it in isolation. When we talk about these peripheral, isolated, you know, hashtags or worldviews, they don't work. And uh, if anything, they're more divisive. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Um, so what's the one thing, and you can only choose one, <laughs> what's the one thing you would change about education? If I could change one thing about education, it'd probably, um, perhaps public opinion. If I could change the public opinion of what we do, it would be really, really important. The amount of times people have said, oh, you've got more holidays this year. No, I haven't. Piss off. We're talking about holidays. I work in my holidays. So the whole public perception there is an easy job, and it's a... Uh, anyone can do it nonsense absolutely it takes a special person to be a teacher it's like it's like having a donor card you sacrifice your life to the role and everything that comes with it you can't you can't get you know leathered at the weekend and students see you there's so many like the whole being a teacher is a lifestyle it's a, it's, a, it's a culture it's a it's a complete different from any other job so if we could change public perception particularly since this pandemic i think i think the public perception of teaching is very tainted with this idea that you know we're all you know lefty liberal snowflakes you know and we're all you know um work shy and or unwilling to go to work during the pandemic and that we're afraid of catching covid of course we're afraid of catching covid we want to work in a safe environment that's all, we, all we're asking for at the very core so if we could change the public perception and bridge that disconnect between the public and ourselves that's how we can bridge the disconnect between ourselves and politicians hopefully I think that has an impact as well on teacher retention and recruitment because, mm. you know, if you're a, I know they had a while ago some really big 
grants for people who are maths or science teachers to recruit maths and science teachers and so lots of people did the did the um the pgce just for the for the grant and then they just quit teaching after that because they found it too difficult because they thought it would be something that would be either easy or because they wanted the the grant and then obviously the parent perception as well and having students come in with their with aspirations from their parents and that kind of respect for teachers because mm. I do feel that is disappearing slowly from mm. some students and that does make a difference to behavior management as well no you're absolutely correct and if you look at how you know the schemes that you refer to the stem schemes when people are given x amount of money to it's the whole idea that we can throw money at the problem you can't you can't buy a teacher teachers are they're they're, they're born you know they are they're people with special skills they're socialized into the role you, you can't keep throwing money there's no magic money tree as we keep being told well there's money to bail our banks but not enough to pay you know the right person the, the, the ups they deserve that's a different story altogether um yeah there's enough money for you know painting jets and going on you know holidays and we can go on eat out to help out we can keep going can't we but yeah that's a different story there's not enough money for quality glue sticks and that does bother me too absolutely yeah there's there's, there's, there's enough money for like staff secret santas aren't there for well-being but there's not enough money to let me go home at three o'clock every day which would be really good for my well-being or free parking Thank at the you. school is there not free parking at all schools that there's schools that charge i actually went for an interview and they charged me two pounds i was like excuse me so it's two pound i got on work in here bye i didn't even turn up the interview what the hell two pound to park my car you having a laugh That's when you charge me to have a dump next are you come on <laughs> taking the piss it's like That's the whole outrageous. nurses thing isn't there the nurses parking at, at hospitals and you just shambolic it's shambolic absolutely shambolic so we've got some questions and i know you wanted to talk about bullying in and school culture in general is that correct yes that's correct Bad. so what do you think a staff member should do if they feel they or someone they know is being bullied or treated unfairly i think if you're personally being bullied i think it's really really important to keep documented detailed notes perhaps a diary of what's going on regular documentation of that um, i think it's also really important to get in touch with the union as quickly as possible and a trusted member of staff someone you can confide in um, and if you know someone who's being bullied i think you've got a moral obligation to support them i think if you can see it with your own eyes uh, i worked in environments where it's happened and i've had opportunities to speak up for those people i'm not saying you know jump out in front of a train uh, or, you know catch a grenade for them or anything like that i'm just saying just be there for them and support them well whilst you can and also you know signpost them signpost them to maybe the head teacher or someone trusted in senior leadership and if it does get worse you know you've got to try and give that person the advice that they would probably give you so if it's signing off if it's having an extended break if it's actually you know dealing with the situation formally but um the, honestly the best piece of advice i'd ever give to anyone who's being being bullied in education it's unacceptable it can't carry on it's not good for your well-being it's unprofessional and and it's it's unjust ultimately you've got to do what's right for you and if you've got family even if you live by yourself you care for someone you're all at the end of the day you have to care for yourself and the school will carry on you know things will the kids will you know the kids will carry on learning you just have to be in a good place yourself and bullying in any environment is just totally unacceptable i um i find it astounding to think how people in education we pioneer you know the teaching standards ts8 which is our professional practice how people in education um are able to behave in in a way that's um so grossly unprofessional and so perverse 
um, if anything, you know, we should be working together in supporting our learners rather than, you know, it's like having, it's like, you can, it's like dealing, it's like management, isn't it really? You can, ma- managing kids is pretty easy, I think, you know that, you know, touch wood, it's not too bad. Managing adults, you're managing egos, you're managing, you know, uh, personal, people's personal views and ideas. So, I think, you know, again, it, it boils back down to the idea of, you know, making sure that, you know, you are protecting our, yourself, you know, you are supporting members of staff who are being bullied and you're using the appropriate channels. But union membership is um, it's the best, the best thing in the entire world and documenting what's going on regularly. Um, and if, if it feels like something's wrong or you're being asked to do something that, is, that may be, you know, uh, wrong or, you know, that is malpractice, you know, you should use your own men, uh, judgment, question it, consider it. And then when that take the necessary action when when appropriate definitely i think from reading in the tes um the community section it's really clear that it does happen on a regular basis mm, and it's rampant yeah absolutely and there are some people who find it difficult to stand up for themselves and they would just rather leave which is really sad because a lot of these people are really hard-working teachers and mm. they you know make an impact on children's lives and mm. they care about mm. the job and mm what happens is when they leave then that you know that bullying or that that kind of culture then impacts Mm. on somebody else and Mm. once you've left you can't do anything about it but when Mm. you're in it you feel like you can't do anything about it as well so it's really you know good to hear that there's the union you can speak to you know you should be speaking to a trusted friend and all these types of things are really important for people to know about I think absolutely i've written a book about it it's called toxic schools our antidote it's not quite in the publishing phase it's still going through the process of it it coming through but the number of teachers i've traveled high and wide i've been up your neck of the woods wigan actually around that way eh, do an interview um and i'm astounded with the number of schools that pass out these settlement agreements or ndas they're paying money to keep people silent that money should be towards our students that should be geared towards us too, not to silence people for the malpractice then cover that malpractice up so i do think it's a uh, it's a pandemic in our education system i do think it happens regularly i do think there's a real genuine fear to speak up um uh, but i also do think there's there's there are safe spaces to talk about it and finding safe people to talk about it as well a situation as well so um it's frightening it's frightening you know we are you know we are a time where we we need we need more teachers in the classroom and you know, it's all hands on deck we're all struggling we should all be working together even when i hear things like people having their lunch times taken off them or you know bar charts for the number of mugs that are not washed in the staff room just wash them you mug wasting time what are you doing like, it, it's, it, it's totally illogical it leaves me perplexed thinking that we are making lives difficult for ourselves if anything we should be making life as easy as possible for ourselves but yeah, bullying, I've got no place for it. I, I just haven't got the heart for it. And it's heartbreaking. I've done Zooms and, and interviews with people and they've spoken, people have messaged me on Twitter. You know, they, they ask me for advice. Sometimes I haven't got any advice. I don't know what to say. I'm so disgusted with what's happening and what I'm hearing and what I'm reading. And, you know, Tess, you know, they, they publish you know, a few bits here and there. But if you go on any forum, any if you just type in hashtag toxic schools on Twitter, you will see, you know, some absolutely disgraceful practice that is it makes your blood boil thinking that there's a human being is treating another human being that way it makes you wonder why any manager or any leadership team would foster that type of environment or that culture because the impact that it has on every aspect of education the children the parents the teachers the the teachers family members it permeates the whole kind of culture and the whole wider aspects of the school so Mm. what do you think 
that impact has on a teacher and a teacher's you know home life and their school life i've actually was bullied at a school uh not too long ago um i found it it almost felt like there's a noose around your neck you know i literally did feel that way i felt like i was going home and i was inadequate you know i felt all personal relationships fall apart i broke up with partners i've had uh you know you go through waves of anxiety you begin to question your sanity you've been gaslighted to the point where you think oh it's just me this isn't going on elsewhere and you close off you stop talking to people that you love. You stop. Uh, you stop doing things you enjoy. Uh, it has such a perverse, personalized effect on people, and people know that the, the, it's it's a very it's a very conscious thing to bully someone. No one does it accidentally. It's this. It's a it's a it's a wave. It's a um. It's a set of events that lead to this happening, and you know a, a culture that creates that enables bullying to uh, uh, to prosper and perpetuate. So. For me, honestly, it, it can it destroys everything. Your your self confidence is shattered. You've got I had PTSD. I couldn't apply for jobs. I was scared to apply. I was scared to go to interviews. I used to rock up in my car, pull up at the school, and not go to the interview. I was I was shaking and um, and to think that you know we build ourselves on resilience. And I grew up in the era of toxic masculinity. You know, men don't talk about how they feel. That's just you know how it is. You know, my household is very much the same as well. But it's. It made me, you know, uh, reflect on my own practice in such a such a difficult way. But uh, I think one of the blessings that has come from it, I know my rights now. I know when, I know when I'm being badly treated. I know when I can walk away and let go. But it's come with a lot of loss, you know. It comes with loss of earnings, you know. Um, Know, issues with mental health, you know, anxiety, you know, loss of friendships and relationships. So, yeah, the, the losses are, you know, are, are significant for a teacher. And no, we wear the weight of what we hear and what we see. You know, we carry everywhere. We carry baggage around everywhere. And you can just, you can see it in people's eyes when they talk about it, especially people that have been bullied, you know, you can, or, or have been through difficult times. You can see it in their eyes and how they interact with one another. It's a, uh, it's a tacit sort of atmospheric sort of thing, you know, um, and it's, and it reflects on the kids when you walk around schools. They know their teachers are not smiling anymore. They know that this teacher's been missing for three weeks and no one knows where they've gone. It does reflect on the students. And to think that a lot of this bullying is in done is done in, in like in the name of, you know, it's for the kids, you know, and it's for their progress. Well, it's not, you know, they're missing out on having their teacher in school because you couldn't manage them at, at the very core. You couldn't support them and you were unwilling to support them and your mal your 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 malpractice and your mismanagement has led to them leaving. So ultimately, you know, we need accountability for these heads who do this. You know, I know there's there's schools and there's there's heads of departments, etc. I'm not here to bash SLT, you know, but there are people out there who are unaccountable for for decades of malpractice. You know, these people need to be brought forward, questioned, and where are Ofsted? Why are Ofsted not asking questions about school culture? You know, it's easy to look at, you know, fancy colored pens and highlighters and marking and whatnot. And, you know, and ask a few questions about, I don't know, what, what do they ask questions about? You know, well-being and biscuit tins and that sort of nonsense. Ask about the staff culture. Ask about, you know, um, staff turnover and retention. Ask them what exit meetings. Why are we not holding exit meetings? Oh. We should be analyzing exit meeting notes. They should be published. They should be published with the Ofsted. Why this teacher left, you know, the reasons for their removal or their, their dismissal. It should be made public. Things should be, there should be more accountability. It needs to be out in the open and we need to keep carrying on talking about I will not ever stop talking about the culture in schools. And if people say that, you know, there's an, a wave of negativity or pessimism, I'm pessimistic because we have to see pessimism before we see optimism. That's how I look at it. I think you've kind of, there's two points there that I want to just really address. The first one is the, the impact that 
that has on students and I think it's not really thought about by those teachers who are perpetuating this negative culture or these leaders that are perpetuating it and the effect on the students is so massive it the impact is huge and actually instead of looking at teachers and saying you're not doing this right we need to micromanage you it should be right okay so there are several staff who are struggling to you know I don't know implement whatever it might be whatever initiative that they've got and looking at the way that students learn we know that if a student's failing their exams we're not just going to put them in a corner and tell them that they're terrible we're going to create this culture around them of achievement and um, aspiration and really push them and help them and support them and that should be there for staff as well and I'm not sure why it isn't considering the impact on student attainment is so massive. Absolutely loyalty works two ways people only stay in jobs because they know they've had support by their leadership they've not been supported by their leadership they will leave and then then, then leadership will be scratching their head oh why did they leave they left because you didn't support them at critical periods in their life I've spoken to teachers who on maternity leave they came back and their job's gone They've been taken, they've lost their TLR, they've lost their, their UPS straight away simply because they had a child. They've been penalised for starting a family. And, and what, how, how does that impact on their morale? How does that impact on their well-being? So we've got to be conscious, even like how, you know, when leaders interact with their staff, they need to be conscious of the context. It's almost like schools need to have like files and like, you know, some sort of understanding of people's, you know, uh, difficulties at home. You know, people go through all sorts, especially with this pandemic. How difficult has it been, you know, sitting at home for months on end? We've got staff in the risk category. We should know who they are. We should be able to address them, support them, you know, socially distant from them. So knowing your staff is really really important that takes time that takes empathy and sadly at times i think that's massively lacking in education the the, the human touch is lacking and if we can't be humane towards fellow professionals what chance have we got towards those kids i think too um one of the things that um i've noticed with students who've been around teachers who have bullied we forget that students have empathy and students are really more perceptive than we ever imagine. And if they notice the staff are being bullied, they feel unsafe themselves. So it puts them in a really weird safeguarding position, but it also just makes your school look like it's completely unprofessional and falling apart. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, when staff are being bullied, they feel there's no way out so they, they they everything they're doing is not good enough so they're self-doubting constantly and if a teacher is not assured of their practice how on earth is a child going to be assured of that teacher it's impossible yeah especially when you agree. want you know if, if a student's being bullied and you want that student to be able to speak to a member of the safeguarding team or a safe adult and their you know favorite adult or their form teacher is also being bullied by the person that they're supposed to students supposed to go to to um kind of explain the situation it's it, it puts the student in a difficult position i wouldn't want to go to a teacher who i thought was putting pressure on somebody else and yeah. say i want you to help me because i'm being bullied because you know that they're doing it to somebody else absolutely and having anti-bullying policies and posters they just catch dust they gather dust don't they they don't mean anything you know and having these policies in place and saying oh we've got a policy but it's it's it, it's not just like Teachers that get bullied by fellow teachers, HR could bully teachers. You know, I've heard of some horrendous HR practices, people being allowed to, you know, go for weddings, but not be allowed to go to funerals and things like that. Senior leadership being allowed all expenses, paid trips to golfing events, but people being denied, denied days off for uh, having their child baptized and things like that. So we recognize inconsistency massively. And just like children, 
we don't like injustice and we see injustice it massively impacts on how we perceive the other person and now really the head head teachers can't deal with everything micromanagement is necessary to an extent but not to the point where you know it becomes so perverse that you're worried about you know breathing too loud and that's what i was worried about in meetings i'm worried if i bring a drink with me will they question that or does it deem am i wearing the right shoes today and the right color socks and you're constantly overthinking things when you should be focusing on the progress of the students it takes up all your brain all your kind of energy and all your thinking time thinking about how you're going to get it wrong as opposed to thinking about how you can really improve things for the students and it's mm. wrong and if you ever go to occupational health or any sort of support groups majority of the people sat there and it's really sad to say this are teachers it's, it's really scary or former teachers people that have left the profession the ptsd is, is unheard of it's untold it's, un, it's unspoken of and it's the unspoken truths of bullying that we don't hear and so many stories are silenced and no it's really sad that journalists pick up on it because they can spin it we know the reality a lot of us you know we can't talk about it because of uh, settlements non-disclosure agreements so no, it's, it, and how then also how do you publish this material without painting grey clouds over a profession that's being destroyed? So it's such a, uh, it's a fine line between love and hate, isn't it? Definitely. I think a lot of schools and a lot of teachers also don't want to go public because mm. if there's someone bullying them in a school, it doesn't actually reflect the whole school community. Mm. It reflects bad people who are doing bad things but it doesn't reflect your amazing students it doesn't reflect you might have some really good managers that just don't really know how to deal with bullying so it's a protection thing as well because you just you don't want to throw them into an inspection because you've gone public on something absolutely also it's, there's an assumption across all schools that good teachers become good leaders it's not that's not true that's just un, that's, a, that's a very poor correlation to make you can have some outstanding teachers dealing with adults it's a completely different ball game so we've got to we've got to like it's really hard it's almost like we have to teach teachers how to manage adults when they've been learning how to manage kids for so long so it's uh, that again links back to the pgc the very early re recruitment the cpd that they do the one thing i find people who are in leadership who are bullies they flat out refuse to reflect on their practice. They flat out refuse to sit CPD because they think they're doing a good job when really they're making someone's life utterly miserable. It needs to be more embedded into teacher training or leadership training on how to support other members of staff, you know, how to create a positive culture. And I think it should be taught. It's almost like differentiation, isn't it? It's almost like pitching it at different people. Like you, like I said earlier, you can't like crack jokes at a funeral, can you? It's just, it's almost that idea that there's this veneer and this worldview, this approach that, you know, being a good teacher just automatically, you know, prepares you for leadership. It really doesn't. So we have to take a step back and consider the social side of things and, you know, how we can embed that. The thing is, it's sad because at the very core, you just need to be, and you just need to have empathy. You don't need a high horse. You don't need a high horse in any of this, okay? You just need to have a heart and some empathy. The fact that people want to ride in on a high horse and, and speak so um, from, a, from a position above everyone rather than actually just support people, I think that's where the problem lies. And, it, and it's, uh, it's sad. It is really sad. We've, we've lost some incredible teachers. I know so many incredible teachers who've left the profession because they've been mismanaged. They've been managed out. Mm. Kath, did you want to say something? Could you put your hand up? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, so I was going to ask, um, you talked about um, changing the culture. So what do you think that schools could do to kind of halt the prosperity of bullying in their schools? 
When I did, when I, when I was working on my book, I interviewed NQTs, and the question I pitched at these NQTs in a focus group as well, I pitched them, what would you not want to see in your school? That's what I asked. And they were saying things like, oh, we don't want a heavy workload. We want uh, well-being policies that are live, not laminated. We want, um, we, want, we want to be supported every step of the way. We want CPD, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we stop the culture, really? I think it's not about a few bad apples. I think sometimes a culture is the entire cart. And I'm not saying you destroy, you individually weed people out, but there's got to be a conversation here where, you know, you know, stakeholders like governors, um, multi-academy trust CEOs, the people who earn big money, Ofsted as well, they need to be looking at individual schools and looking at why they're why they got such issues with retention and recruitment. Why are staff leaving? Why did mid-year did this wonderful teacher everyone loved just walk out and leave? Why did you know um, this member of staff? Just for a random example, you know, why was he? Why did he have a mental health breakdown? You know, what support have we put in since they've left? What have we done? Because once they left left off the, that, that door and they've left the school. What do we put in place? We put nothing in place. We've allowed them to just go out there. And I remember when I was going through a bad time, I was, you know, I was depressed. I was, I was so anxious. No one contacted me. And it's the idea that it's almost like information is gold. No one can know where that person went. And when you, when you're bullied in a school, you lose friends. You lose people you thought were close to you. You can't trust anyone. It's you're constantly suspicious. Eradicating that culture is, is having those open conversations with your leadership and trusting them. But you know, we're in an age of professional mistrust, aren't we? We're in an age of anti-expert, you know, no one wants to follow expert advice, do they? You know, whether it's with the pandemic or in school. So again, it's really reiterating the idea there's an openness, open door policies, not doors that are left ajar, actually physically opening doors, letting staff in, have those conversations, being open with your staff, letting your guard down if you're a leader around your staff. Talk about football. You're not above them. You might earn a bit more than them, but you're not above them. Respect is earned, you know, as gathered as well. So it's one of those things where it really is about opening up dialogue and conversations um, and ultimately you know if it, if, if it does perpetuate you need to go to a, a third and fourth you know sort of uh, institutional body to get support it should be through unions or it should be through Ofsted and I really do recommend that every teacher listening to this joins a union it's uh, although they don't get the respect they deserve you know they, they could save your life I totally agree with that. What do you think it was that really pulled you out of a funk after having this incident of bullying and made you go back into the classroom? I took a five-month sabbatical, so from April to June, sorry, April to September, I took a five months. My intention was to leave teaching and never go back into it. It was actually, um, I did a bit of traveling, I was doing, going left, right, and I just thought, if I leave now, what will be my legacy in the classroom? I had a fantastic NQT year, and the next two years, this is my fifth year of teaching. So the, the, after my NQT, I had two pretty rough years. I thought, what's going to be my legacy in teaching? There's got to be something left there. The Khan name has to mean something, you know. The, so I thought, I'll just try a bit of supply. And um, I think the excitement rebuilds, and you begin to dream again. And that's really hard, because after you go through a difficult time, you're rebuilding your self-esteem and self-confidence. But, you know... Um, I think I've been very fortunate where I've been supported by some wonderful people. I've got some really wonderful friends. Um, they've provided me with, you know, um, a, you know, a shoulder to cry on at times, you know, a sofa to sleep on, you know, an ear to uh, talk to whatever. I don't know what I'm losing my train of thought. But yeah, they, um, I've had some very fun, wonderful people. And I think there's unfinished business. 
it's unfinished business in that classroom. I, I, I remember during my NQT, my, my report, at the end of my report said, you know, he's got so much to offer the profession. And I didn't want to leave, you know. I want to leave, you know, in the, like, if I get a chance to leave, I want it to be like red carpet rolled out. I want that, you know, the, you know, the guard of honor. I want that. And, and it will happen in one way or another. And you know, I want to leave education a better place than what I found it. Hence why I started the book. So, and uh, I think it's really important that we continue to reflect our own practice and support our NQTs and trainees that are coming through. So I still think there's unfinished business. I still think, you know, I should be in education. I love it. I love it to bits. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do since I was a child. People want to be astronauts and doctors. I just want to be Mr. Khan, nothing else. I didn't want anything. I just want to teach my lessons and, and do my job. But yeah, if, if, if anything, you know, it was a, a massive spiritual journey. I'm still on that journey. I'm still traveling. I'm still finding the right people. I'm still um, filtering through ideas. I'm still learning every single day. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm still on that journey of recovery. And it's it's been well over a year. But I don't, you never get, it's almost like grief almost. You never really get over it. If anything, you know, you just find a way of, you know, picking out the positives and looking at all the good things that you've done. And I look back at, you know, certain memories in my teaching career, like, you know, the Korma incident. And I just laugh at it. I just think, you know, I just laugh at it. I think, you know what? I had a great time. And if you're not there for a long time, you're there for a short time and a good time. So that's how I look at it. So, you know, longevity versus, you know, enjoyment. I'll, I'll, I'll take the enjoyment, you know, that we only live once, you know. We can work in teaching for 30 years and not have any, any good years. We have one good year and 30 bad ones. The, the one good year we have, we should be cherished. I think as well, looking at, your culture in it where you are and seeing where you can go from there because i know there's lots of teachers who've got in touch talking about moving on to supply and actually finding their love again like what you've just spoken about and feeling that the confidence improves because they turn up as a supply teacher and somebody says to them do you know you're the best you know i don't know math teacher we've ever had and we'd like you to stay and i think building up that confidence it can be knocked down and it can be knocked down quite easily especially when you've had some kind of traumatic experiences in schools but building that up again it will happen if you're in the right place with the right people and the right leadership team and the right culture absolutely and finding that it could take a lifetime once you found your school and the school that you want to stay at forever you know that's absolutely incredible but some people just takes longer like i know people are did it um pgc and they're in the same school for four years now four or five years now i've moved school six times so it happens you know it happens you, you've got to find out what works for you and what fits for you but you're absolutely correct i think going into supply the flexibility is really important you know that when you get to go home that's it, it's you time. That's the most wonderful feeling and that's how it should be for every teacher. I feel so sorry for the ones who stay till like seven, eight o'clock every night and they go and pick their kids up and then they make dinner and then they eat and then they're doing more work, they're responding to emails, it's horrible. So there's gotta be a cutoff point, it really does. And I think heads have to step in and say, you know, enough's enough. We've got to support our teachers and we've got to try and create some sort of work-life balance just for their sanity and also to make sure we keep this fantastic member of staff in the school. So what kind of things do you think a leadership team should do to create that positive culture and also give staff their well-being back or, you know, improve their well-being? I think they've got to completely cut out the arbitrary, you know, admin activities, the red tape, you know, some of the stuff that we have to do and some of the, the procedures, they are, you know, they are, they don't add anything to student progress. I remember I was in a, in a meeting with a member of staff and she said, pink makes you think that will be our teaching and learning policy for the year and I replied to her where did you get this from was it Vygotsky was it Dewey who did it come from is it Rosenshine's print was it Jesus who was it just tell me who it was she said no 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 that's the policy 
and I couldn't buy into it because it's not validated by research. I need to see where has it been, what country has it been successful in? Where has it been successful? So I need, I think for school, school leaders, they need to look at current research, apply it to their context, and also the work they're doing, the, the sort of leadership roles they do, they should never detach themselves from the classroom at the chalk face. If they're still teaching lessons, if they're still engaged with the daily reality of a teacher, they will understand our struggles, they'll understand our, our, our point of view, they'll understand where we're coming from. So developing that culture really is about immersing yourself in the day-to-day -day context, putting, putting, your, putting your feet in other people's shoes, seeing what the struggles are. If a teacher's struggling with a class, go and sit in that class with them for an hour. If they're struggling with a particular type group of students, go and spend some time with those students. Ask them what they should bridge that disconnect. Don't let, offer them a chance to swim, not to sink. Don't, don't drown them with micromanagement and don't drown their voice out through micromanagement as well. So if anything, that culture really, and it comes from small things like, you know, having lunch with your staff. You know, that's so, it's such, I remember I was sat in a, in a canteen once, I was drinking some milkshake and my head just sat next to me. I was a bit confused that she did it every day for a couple of weeks. I thought, you know what? She's actually a nice lady. She's actually a really wonderful lady. You know that? And she's, she's taken her time. And the students see that. She sat with the minors, you know, people who are nobodies in the school. So then it's even like how we interact with, how senior leaders interact with cleaners as well. You know, telling staff to make sure their windows are shut. And small things, there's small micro interactions that represent empathy. And empathy is very, very, it's a ripple effect. It's like kindness. It ripples across the school. And our kids will do it. Our students will do it. We will do it. So that open culture, it comes from really that personal will, willingness and um, a personal sort of like, instinct to want other people to develop and succeed i think it's the small things as well like you said um you know a, a member of slt that holds the door open for you as you walk as you're walking towards a building or you know someone who says how's your day and actually doesn't want to know about school stuff they just want to know how you are and mm. it's really important because if we retain those types of you know leadership leadership roles and teachers we'll end up with a school full of people who are really supportive and it'll be a great culture to be in and the staff turnover will be lower and students will feel more stable and it'll just be a better place to be. A school should be full of smiles and happiness and laughter. That's how progress occurs. If there's no smiles, happiness and laughter, those children can have miserable home lives and so could staff. School should be their safe place. It should be their second home. It should be their safe haven. So we should be aspiring to create that, not a dungeon. Totally agree. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm definitely going to be repeating your lived, not laminated. And I'm really, really looking forward to listening to your podcast, Anti-Small Talk. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much as well. I'd love to have you guys eventually on Anti-Small Talk at some stage. I think it'd be incredible to have that collaboration and, that, and those conversations as well. But thank you so much for sharing the platform with me. And uh, I've had a great time. It's been a blast. Thank you very much. pupils causing concern, Schweb's going to share one of his stories. I've got several. One, the most incredible story ever was um, I was marking a year seven's piece of uh, work. I, I teach RE and geography and sociology. So it was a um, RE piece and he wrote um, that um, if you cheat in an exam, it will give you bad karma. I think he meant, meant karma. So I wrote as a comment, I wrote as a return comment, um, bad karma is equally as equally bad. 
uh, but I think he meant, I think he meant bad karma, and he didn't. He still doesn't know the distinction between the two. And I saw him like in the shops not too long ago, and he shouted out karma at me. As you can imagine, as an Asian male, um, that was clearly appropriate. His mother looked disgusted. Um, that's one of the funny stories I think I could have. Um, but the thing is, I'd explain it. I did try to correct him, but I still don't think he understood. Uh, bless his heart. Um, yeah, bless his heart. And I've got a second really funny story. One of my students walked up to me, at a year 11 lad, he walked up to me at the end of the day, he said, your lessons, Khan, are full of inspirational quotes and nostalgia, aren't they? I go, yeah, they are. And we left it at that and we just, it, he just burst into laughter. So yeah, inspirational quotes and nostalgia, that's what you'd expect to see in a, a Shweb Khan lesson, yeah. Um, hopefully anyway. Lovely, sounds great. <laughs> I love that. I love nostalgia in a lesson. Yeah. Nostalgia is really important, you know, it, 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 it reminds you of a time that was great, at a time that is currently not so great. It's a good way nice of putting it. Up, yeah. In any other business, we're going to speak about our next episode, which is in two weeks. So Cass, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, we're really excited. We've got an interview with David Gumbrell, who is um, an author and also an educator. And he is talking to us about his book on teacher resilience. He is also offering one of our very, very lucky listeners the opportunity to win one of his books. So we're going to put all the details on social media and um, you'll need to like and share posts in order to win. But have a look on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook um, to find out more information and find out all the different ways that you can enter to win one of his books. Um, he was really great to talk to. He really talked about um, real positivity in terms of teaching. Um, so it's a really, really great episode coming up. We've also got some episodes coming up about well-being because obviously we feel very strongly about that. But it's also an issue that just keeps coming up and coming up when we're doing our research. So. Um, That'll be really interesting to hear some more information on that. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about or that you're interested in hearing about, please let us know. Obviously, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, you can get into contact with us or you can email us noncontacttime at gmail.com. Let's have a listen to David's favourite teacher. Well, my favourite teacher, when I, first, when, I, when I first think about that question, was a guy called Mr. Klukas and he was the oldest teacher in the school. And we used to think he was so old that how could he possibly teach? But actually, what he was able to do is he taught me how to believe in myself and how to write an essay. And he made such a difference to my life that my parents still talk about him. And actually, I cried when I found out he died because actually this guy made a massive emotional impact on me, but also connected with me. He believed in me. And I think that's what teaching is all about, isn't it? So kind of Mr. Klukas was the first one that comes into my head. And then at university I had a similar problem. So um, despite being an author, I found writing quite hard and um, writing essays at university level was really tricky and I wasn't doing very well. And then one of the lecturers uh, just took me aside and went, David, do you want me to teach you how to write an essay? And I went, yeah, can I just have an hour of your time, please? And she sat me down, she talked me through and my grades jumped by 20 20%. Wow. Because she took the time, she connected with me, she she realised who I was, she realised what I was struggling with, she nailed it and got it right. And that's the kind of teacher I wanted to be. I wanted to replicate those those teachers um, and be that one that spots 
chops the moment and gets it right. Wow, oh, that's amazing. Bad. If you'd like to hear more from David, please tune into our podcast in two weeks' time to have a listen. Check out Non-Contact Time on Instagram and Twitter to find out how you can win that signed copy of David's book. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.